0: This wonderful thing, the Bill of Rights. My heavens, is there anything cooler and more revered? No, we all adore the Bill of Rights. I love First Amendment Supreme Court cases. I love reading about them, everything.
1: That's Nick Capodice, co-host of Civics 101, the popular New Hampshire public radio show widely heard via radio and downloads and also used in middle and high school classrooms throughout the U.S. I'm Robert Pease, and today on The Purple Principle, a shift away from the perils of polarization towards civics education as a way to depolarize just a bit.
2: And I'm Jillian Youngblood, co-host here at the Purple Principle. And civics is my first love, both in front of this bike and also my computer screen. As executive director of Civic Genius, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to strengthen our civic culture.
1: Civics is a term you hear a lot, but does have varying interpretations. The simplest definition of civics would be the rights and responsibilities of citizens.
2: Though you could also define it as the lifeblood of democracy. Or, as Ben Franklin is said to have said, a republic if we can keep it.
1: Important stuff, Civics. But let's be honest. As taught to middle and high schoolers from a well-worn textbook, Civics has induced more than its share of groans and eye rolls over time, as well as note passing and text messaging on unrelated topics.
2: But the team at Civics 101 has made Civics not only more accessible, but kind of a cool, more personal subject, too at least when presented by Nick Capodice and co-host Hannah McCarthy.
3: And I have had the unbelievable privilege of interviewing two descendants of plaintiffs in two Supreme Court cases. And in both of those cases, it was so eye-opening to speak to someone who doesn't just inherit these decisions the way that we all inherit them as Americans, but for whom they carry it in their bones. This is their life and this is their family's story.
1: Currently in the U.S., there's also a flurry of legislative activity involving civics education, at least 88 bills at the state level, and a federal funding bill, the Civics Secures Democracy Act, that's currently sitting in committee.
2: We'll talk to one legislator in New Hampshire, Colonel Michael Moffitt, who's taught civics for decades at the community college and university level. The civics ed bill he sponsored was recently signed into law in the Granite State.
4: And again, for me personally, having taught this in this field, and also I've taught other courses in college as well, and I and others have just been you know, very discouraged by the lack of basic fundamental core knowledge of how government works.
1: And we'll meet Dr. Laura Hammack, a superintendent whose rural school district in Indiana a few years back not only won their state civics contest six times, but the national contest two years running.
5: And at the end, the judges, which never happens, gave these young women—it was just happened to be a, a team of four young women—stood up, gave them a standing ovation, and said, you know, boy, this is what our leaders, you know, need to be seeing a lot more of.
1: Civics hasn't had this much attention since the Schoolhouse Rock episode launched in the 1970s. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill.
2: Well, and it hasn't been this cowabunga since Lisa Simpson won her local civics contest in the 1990s.
0: When America was born on that hot July day in 1776, the trees in Springfield Forest were tiny saplings trembling towards the sun. Lisa, after meeting your father, I've decided to award you an
2: additional five points. Congratulations. You and your family are going to Washington.
1: Woohoo! Join us today as we explore the importance of civics education and the efforts to raise its profile nationwide, starting with the co hosts of Civics 101, the long-running public radio show.
2: The show has deftly handled topics as well-worn as the Electoral College and Judicial Review, and as poorly understood as the Electoral College and Judicial Review.
1: So let's start with the origins of Civics 101, the impetus coming, aptly enough, from citizens with questions and concerns.
3: Civics 101 started shortly after the 2016 election, after the election of Trump. Many people were, I think, paying more attention to the news or hearing things in the news that they had never expected to hear before and listening to a lot more of it. So we were getting questions along the lines of, can that person do that? I've never seen that done before. A lot of unprecedented but also, just because people were paying more attention to the news in certain respects, we got a lot of, and now what does the Secretary of State actually do? Or what is a treaty, by the way?
1: Remind me when you folks came on board, and I, I know is at different
0: times. So, Nick, let's start with you. Sure. So um, I moved to New Hampshire from the great city of Brooklyn. And I was working at the time as a uh, in the education department at a place called the Tenement Museum in New York, where a, a place I adore, which is all about telling stories in order to teach history. And there was a job at NHPR for an education outreach producer at New Hampshire Public Radio, someone who can get the podcast into classrooms. And that was my job. Hannah, at the time was doing production for the show. So Hannah and I started making these episodes on the side called Civics 101 IRL, which was kind of fun episodes about Supreme Court cases, civics in real life, how do they actually how do these lessons actually apply to your daily life as an American? And then coincidentally the host left and they tapped Hannah and I to be the co-hosts and we quickly found that we could make a narrative style podcast that's a little bit more appealing to students and that's sort of what the show morphed into over the last 3 years.
1: I'm curious, how does one get into the classroom? It seems like with a lot of things like textbooks, for example, that there needs to be some sort of vetting process, but did you have to actually
0: go through that process before teachers could begin to use your material? One teacher starts listening to it, passes it to another, and the next thing we know, we have this group of teachers who support our show, who play it in their classrooms. To sort of actually encourage that, we created something called The Cabinet, which is a group of 20 teachers across the country who help make lesson plans to pair with their shows, listen to them, tell us what they like, tell us what they don't like, and help us sort of be better geared to be in schools. But Rob, to your actual question, there's no official sort of process.
3: And I would say in actual fact, I have found that a lot of teachers will say, I'm so glad you made an episode about this because I can't say this out loud in the classroom. And because we can talk about sometimes a hot button issue as nonpartisanly as possible, these teachers are allowed to bring that debate into the classroom without themselves being perceived as the person who is instigating it, which I thought was both a bit sad and really quite interesting.
1: So when teachers contact you to use the material in the classroom, typically is it high school level or is it middle school and younger?
3: And we have spoken to an eighth grade class that didn't seem to have any trouble in comprehending or engaging with any of the material, which is really heartening because often it feels like you're shouting into a void unless you join a Twitter chat with a bunch of teachers, which we do fairly regularly, or we actually get to speak to some of these teachers on the phone or at conferences.
0: I want to just jump on one thing, Hannah, because I I was going to just say a big old ghost-style ditto to that, because I I agree a thousand percent. Uh, We do student contests every year where we have students submit stuff, right? And this year's was called There Ought to Be a Law, and we asked students to submit proposed legislation to fix a problem in their community. We got hundreds of responses. That's a success. More than, say, an episode getting 250,000 downloads, right? Hundreds of students submitting laws big success. But the winner of that contest, her school principal listened to the episode, and he is starting to reevaluate school policy based on her proposed law.
3: Hello. My name is Emily and I am from
0: Sunnyville, California. I believe that there ought to be a law that implements a mandatory life skills class lasting at least a year in all high schools across the country. Not being taught life skills in high school is a problem because students need to be prepared to probably take care of themselves in the real world outside an academic standpoint.
2: Ah, student contests. Gotta love them. Especially when kids get revved up about subjects as vital as civics, just before they suddenly find themselves at campaign
1: rallies and voting booths. Our next guest has been part of some really remarkable experiences at the National Civics Contest, We the People. Dr. Laura Hammack is the former superintendent of Brown County, Indiana, which won the national championships in 2013 and fourteen as well as the Indiana Contest, six times.
2: We'll circle back to Hannah and Nick from Civics 101 in just a beat. But let's hear more about that amazing group of kids from Brown County, as well as Dr. Hammack's experience with Civics Instruction.
5: So I think, unfortunately, what I have noticed over the course of my career, I began as an educator in 1996. So over these, well, you know, back in the dark ages, right, there has definitely been... When we had the introduction of high-stakes testing and assessment in public education, there was a decidedly strong shift towards a profound emphasis on mathematics and language arts reading instruction. And during that time, what was evidenced was a falling away of some of the humanities work, which social studies and civics education really falls
1: under. So I don't know if you've had this particular question or perhaps some of your colleagues have, but I'll direct it to you. Dr. Hammock, I'm going to be a professional ball player or actor or rapper. Why do I need to know this stuff?
5: So we believe that civics education has the power to create a more informed citizen who is then ultimately able to navigate in their democratic world in a way that allows for their voice and their witness to have an impact on their their community. And so when you are a more informed citizen, the power of your voice in the dynamics of what's happening in your local community, but then also what's happening on a broader scale, allows for... That more informed electorate that then ultimately is a more engaged electorate. So be it whatever role in life that you are as a student, you know, sort of going after, when you are more informed about the how of what is happening in local government as well as a state or national platform, then that just positions you as a more informed citizen and a more engaged citizen.
1: Even for politicians.
5: Ha! yes, even for politicians. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) particularly for politicians, right? Um, It is extraordinary, really. And I think that, you know, from some of the programming that we've been able to implement at the local level, we have eighth graders that are able to engage in discussion about the United States Constitution that can put many adults to
1: shame. You've certainly had a lot of experience with some impressive middle schoolers, because if I were reading this correctly in your previous district, your civics entrance in the we, the people competition won the state championship six times. So tell us how you got interested in that program, how the kids were prepared and how they were able to consistently do so well.
5: Yeah. So actually, and I, I was lucky enough when I began as superintendent in Brown County, the we, the people program was already there. And the incredible (laughs) performance of this very just to put kind of position you with uh, a little perspective on what brown county schools is all about it's a very small rural school community high poverty and students from brown county junior high school won not just state championships but they also won national championships in the we the people competition in washington dc so what we witnessed was the power of civics education To really change a community, we are really uh, blessed with the Indiana Bar Foundation. It's an incredible organization that advances a whole number of incredible activities, one of which is their sponsorship of the We the People program, and they got connected with this curricula that allows for students in the 5th, the 8th, and then at the high school level to participate in the curricular component which then ultimately is matched in a competition where students are spending the bulk of their school year in class preparing for a simulation of a congressional hearing. So this school district with a total of 1,650 students won the National Championship for We the People for the eighth grade, which is just a really incredible thing, uh, considering many of the backgrounds that the students, you know, sort of carry, but they were able to be prepared from some pretty extraordinary educators that allowed for them to get to that position.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to date myself here, but that sounds a little bit like the movie Hoosiers, but the civics version, right?
4: Forget about the crowds, the size of the school, their fancy uniforms, and remember what got you here. Focus on the fundamentals that we've gone over time and time again. I don't care what the scoreboard says. At the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners.
3: All right. Let's go.
5: Oh, you're so right. Yes, we are like the Milan, absolutely, of civics education. We'll take it.
1: So you have these competitions and these are judged, correct? That's correct. Can you remember some particularly difficult situations where some kid just came up with something remarkable that really impressed the judges? I'm wondering, also thinking to what these students went on to do, did it influence them long term in terms of their mm-hmm. you know, college acceptances or their career paths?
5: Absolutely. One that I'm recalling is the student whose first name is Marie. Marie uh, has had the opportunity now in her high school year. She, the summer before COVID summer, so this would have been summer of 19, she was invited to uh, serve a summer internship with the ACLU organization in in Washington, D.C. And just this last school year, she was named one of only 12 Bezos scholars, which is a national indication. And so she was all in with her preparation. And it was at that point that she decided that for her and her future, that this was her only like she was just laser focused on making it happen. And so in this particular unit, the judges were really spending some pretty significant time on on free speech, right? Freedom of speech and and, and genuinely a school application of speech. And it was very interesting because in that particular unit, you had Marie who had a point of view and you had one of her teammates who had a very different point of view. And yet in competition, they were able to respectfully use that word, disagree with each other, to offer the evidence why, and then, you know, be able to deliver a very compelling case on why their point of view was correct and why the others might not be substantiated. And at the end, the judges, which never happens, stood, gave these young women, it just happened to be a a team of four young women, uh, stood up, gave them a standing ovation because it was, and said, you know, boy, you know, this is what our leaders, you know, need to be uh, seeing a lot more of, right? Because it was a a true civil discourse on an extraordinarily complex topic. Eighth graders uh, being able to use then case law and evidence and, um, fact, in order to both come to very different conclusions, but in a way that was respectful. So the community then, because many of the students that just didn't have the means in order to to have a new suit, the community really stepped in and uh, ultimately thousands and thousands of dollars were raised to make sure that the students had the right clothes to wear to Washington, D.C. And then flights and travel and all of that for families were Uh, Were donated to be able to make sure that everyone was able to go see these students compete when they made it to DC. So just genuinely a way in which the community really came together in order to advance, elevate, and kind of lift up these kids. Well, the
4: middle school finals is Brown County. (laughs)
3: Winning nationals is a really big deal to me, so I study pretty much every night. All that hard work is paying off. After winning a district competition, then
1: state, the class is now headed to Washington, D.C., The We the People competition, developed by the Center for Civic Education, is held annually for students nationwide. Again, the kids from Indiana's Brown County have won that national competition twice.
2: Unfortunately, though, civics has been de-emphasized in a large percentage of school districts across the country in recent decades. But now there's a flurry of legislative activity, with at least 80 bills filed at the state level.
1: Including in my great and purple state of New Hampshire, The Republican sponsor of that recently signed House Bill 320 is Lieutenant Colonel Michael Moffat, a longtime teacher of civics.
2: Rob interviewed Colonel Moffat from his B&B near Concord, New Hampshire, a photo with General Norman Schwarzkopf proudly displayed in the background.
4: Yes, I started teaching uh, right out of college. I went to the University of New Hampshire in Plymouth State College, and I taught New Hampshire history and government uh, civics. My first uh, four years, actually, a couple of years in public school and a couple of years at a parochial school, love history, love government. Later on, I was in the Marine Corps and then uh, got a graduate degree and went on to uh, teach in uh, some military schools and then community college level and the university level. And uh, throughout, I've retained my interest in uh, government, history, civics, which I enjoy. Not everybody loves it as much as me, but we, th- I think and others think it is very important that citizens understand how their government functions to be uh, truly engaged and good citizens.
1: Yeah. So in the time that you've had this interest and in the time that you've been a teacher, it seems from the little bit of research that we've done that there's maybe been a decline in the amount of civics instruction or the budgeting or the allotment of time for that subject. Have you observed that?
4: Yes, my experience has been that there has been a decline in terms of knowledge and awareness of civics fundamentals, you know, basic history and basic governmental structures, and that's a concern of mine. We're wondering, growing up in New Hampshire, what was your experience
1: like as a civic student? Do you remember it as a subject? Were you immediately interested in it, and what about the other students that you studied civics with?
4: Well, growing up in New Hampshire is pretty cool. Of course, most of us say that about our home states. But uh, the New Hampshire primary, presidential primary, going way back to uh, the 60s when I was in school myself, to have these national figures, go, you name them, and they've been here, and, and we've met them. I remember talking to Ted Kennedy in 1980 before the New Hampshire primary. It's just one of countless examples. We're curious, what are the current civic education
1: requirements in New Hampshire and what is the bill improving? You mentioned more accountability.
4: Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. In New Hampshire, we have requirements. Fourth graders, for example, have to take some instruction in civics, New Hampshire government and history. And oftentimes, we'll see fourth graders visit the state house, which is wonderful to see these nine, 10-year-olds come to the state house and get tours and learn a little bit about the uh, actual building where legislating takes place. So field trips like that are wonderful. And there's some eighth grade and also high school credit requirements. Again, the problem with the credit requirements is that if there's no assessments that go with those, then there's a very uneven application of civics instruction around the state. Every school is different. Every teacher is different. And all too often, my sense has been that there's been a lack of emphasis on the actual knowledge fundamentals of how government works. So I
1: wonder if you've had this experience of trying to explain US politics to, let's say, someone from almost any other country, even a country as close as Canada, they're just completely baffled at the complexity and the challenges of governing in the U.S. Have you had that experience?
4: I have. I actually did a book with an Afghan American Hollywood actor interpreter I met in Afghanistan, and uh, he's somebody who had to take the civics naturalization test to become a citizen. So I've had conversations with people from Afghanistan, like uh, Fahim Fazli, my co-author, to Canada. And last year's election, I know that it's confusing to not just Americans who don't understand the Electoral College. You know, in 2016, Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than did Donald Trump, but Donald Trump became president. So some people scratch their heads, both in America and in Canada and other countries, and say, H- why? How does this work? In fact, I'm, I think most Americans don't understand who electors are. We saw in January 6th, when we had the trouble in Washington, about you know the electors and certifying the election. Are you sometimes a little bit
1: surprised or, let's say, disappointed with lack of civics knowledge from some of the newer legislators, some of the younger legislators who perhaps didn't benefit from as much civics
4: education? I think in most legislatures, the newer, the freshman legislators certainly have a learning curve to, they need to learn about the processes. But in terms of basic Knowledge of government is a spectrum. I think some new legislators are well versed in how government works, and some are clearly not. And they learn as they go. In fact, in the, the House Education Committee hearing, one of the committee members pulled some questions off the test in question, the naturalization test, and asked those questions in committee. And we kind of had some fun with that. So, Michael, can you give us a
1: couple of examples of some of the tougher and maybe a couple of the easier questions that? high school students, presumably college students, and maybe someday uh, your fellow legislators will have to be able to answer?
4: Sure. You can go to the internet and you can just uh, ask or punch in 100-question naturalization citizenship test or the 128-question naturalization citizenship test. There are the two versions. So some of the questions are historical some of the questions have to do with like multiple choice questions in some cases, you know which of these persons was the President of the United States? There are some history chronological type questions I'm trying to remember uh, it was a question about Eisenhower that came up. What was his contribution you know what was his background to become president?
1: Yeah, well, if I remember correctly for my U.S. history classes uh, wasn't Eisenhower courted by both parties to be a presidential candidate?
4: Yeah, General Eisenhower was courted by the Democrats and Republicans. You know, he was kind of a non-aligned, independent person as a general. I was a military officer myself, and you, whoever your commander-in-chief is, you surrender your personal sovereignty to, you know, take orders. So when he became a independent citizen, retired general, popular and you know, the Democrats wanted him, Republicans wanted him. And eventually, he came out as a Republican and was elected in 1952.
1: Yeah, well, as you probably saw, a lot of our topics and our audience are independent or unaffiliated voters in some states called nonpartisans. Um, there's certainly a high percentage of that In New Hampshire, but there's not a lot of mention of independence in high school and college textbooks and in the media uh, generally. Do you think that is a problem when you have anywhere from 35 to 45 percent of the population in a category that's not really well addressed in the curriculum or in the
4: media? Sure. The notion of political parties, of course, if you go back to 1787, there were no political parties. But inevitably, factions evolved out of the the you know the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and but we've had basically a two-party system essentially for a couple of centuries, and uh, third-party candidates ha- do happen or do arise. So the two-party system, I think, needs to be discussed and uh, analyzed, and we locked into this two-party system or. Is there room for third parties or other parties you know that could have significance? I listened to your uh, podcast about Alaska and I was fascinated to learn how few people in Alaska after listening to your your show are affiliated. I was fascinated by that and uh, here in New Hampshire you have about 30 percent Republican about 30 percent Democrat and about 40 percent unaffiliated or independent. So in terms of civics discussion, civics testing, civics uh, classes, the notion of focusing on independence and the roles that independence could play or do play in our process is very interesting to me. And of course, when both parties in most states uh, are in the minority, they have to reach out to these independents. And that, I think, is a healthy thing for either or both parties to have to listen to people and reach out to unaffiliated voters and uh, bring them into the process, get their support, get their votes.
1: That kind of leads to our final question. We ask all our guests to show a bit of purple. And as you're a Republican legislator, could you name someone from the other side of the aisle, a notable Democrat, doesn't have to be living now, but in recent memory that you have particular respect for?
4: Well, there are a lot of great Democrats in our history, in my opinion. Of course, I I am a Republican, obviously. And so I tend to trend a little bit more conservative. But uh, there are many Democrats that I admired in the past and admire now. Currently, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is a uh, Democrat, a fairly independent thinking Democrat who works with with Republicans very well. I, I really admire the fact that he is... Capable of taking a more independent course, which has given him enormous power right at the moment with the 50 50 Senate. So, Senator Joe Manchin, I really admire. And from the past, Senator Joe Lieberman liked him a lot. He was the senator from Connecticut, very likable guy and very reasonable, I thought. Interestingly, Senator Lieberman was taken out in the primary, which you may recall, by a very liberal candidate. And then Senator Lieberman ran as an independent and got tremendous Republican support and some Democrat support, and he regained his seat as an independent. And in doing so, chose progress over partisanship, problem-solving over polarization, and the mainstream over the extremes. Well, real quick, I would say that Senator Manchin, again, being independent or purple, if you will, I know your organization has the word purple in it. There is immense power that Senator Manchin suddenly has because he is purple, if you will.
1: Can you imagine not having to sit down or there's no reason for you to sit down with your colleagues on both sides and have their input? The Senate is the most unique body of government in the world, of governing body in the world. It's deliberate.
4: So there are times where being not locked into a party structure, which is rarer than it used to be, empowers somebody. So Senator Joe Manchin is like that today. New Hampshire legislature, we have uh, the largest legislature in the country, Is you know, a citizen legislature. We have 400 state representatives. I'm one of them. I love it. I've made a lot of friends. And um as a civics person, a governmental person. I love going to state house. I have many friends from, I hope, on both sides of the aisle. And uh, I did have some bipartisan support for my civics bills. So that is crucial. I, if anything is ultra-partisan, it's going to have problems. But if you can get bipartisan involvement, then what moves forward can be more successful. So anyway, uh, what you folks do is very interesting, the Purple Principle and... Uh, you know, good on you for uh, what you're trying to do.
2: That was Colonel Michael Moffitt, Republican legislator from New Hampshire, whose civics education bill was passed by both houses and signed into law this summer.
1: But we should say that some legislative efforts have fallen into partisan gridlock around the country with Republicans and Democrats differing over the definition of civic subject matter.
2: And concerns about federal funding for civics, which is currently a minuscule amount of the overall education budget. But a bill to expand federal funding, co-sponsored by Democratic Senator Chris Coons and Republican Senator John Cornyn, is still stuck in committee.
1: Here in my home state, Colonel Moffat's bill had pretty decent bipartisan support. That could be because of the large number of independent and split ticket voters in New Hampshire.
2: And it could also be due to the educational efforts of Civics 101, produced by New Hampshire Public Radio, widely popular throughout the state, both on the airwaves and in the classroom.
1: We spoke to Civics 101 producers and co hosts, Nick and Hannah, about some themes important to Purple Principal listeners, as well as some of their own favorite episodes.
0: Okay, my favorite series that we did was The Declaration Revisited, which is looking at the Declaration of Independence, specifically how it dealt to people not included in the, you know, and its wonderful promises. So we did an episode about black Americans in the Declaration, Native Americans, and women through the Declaration of Sentiments. So, you know, this like re examination of our tried and true, held up foundational documents.
3: I fall madly in love with whatever subject we're covering at the time, and currently it's Supreme Court cases that you absolutely must know. But we're going through civil rights cases, and I have had the unbelievable privilege of interviewing two descendants of plaintiffs in two Supreme Court cases. So I got to interview the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott, and I got to interview the daughter of Fred Korematsu.
1: My father learned about the Constitution in high school. He was born in Oakland, California, um, attended uh, Castlemont High School, was just like any other American kid, and hung out with his friends, but he was paying attention to uh, the Constitution that day in class. And he thought he had rights as an American citizen.
3: And you start to, once you infuse that human element in these stories, you actually start to understand it. You understand what it was for a man to end up in an internment camp after believing that you should not forcibly remove and relocate an American citizen without any sort of due process.
1: Nick, I believed in one episode, it might have been one about maybe the Democratic Party at the end you were talking about. Oh, it was a very interesting episode because we kind of assumed that there's been these designations of red being Republican and blue being Democratic for a long period of time, but you informed us that's not the case. And at some point in the episode, you actually said to your listenership, hold on to your little purple hat.
0: Uh, <laughs> and that's our favorite color here. <laughs> that's great. You know, I'm afraid that might, be, that might be the only purple reference that I've snuck in, but I, I promise you it will not be the last. I truly I truly did have my mind blown when I learned that red didn't mean Republican and blue didn't mean Democrat and also had my mind blown at just how the two parties have swapped completely 100% one, complete 180s from what they used to be since they were first formed and that they could do so again. So perhaps the purple is, you know, a very sensible, safe, inflatable rowboat to be on, on oceans of red and oceans of blue that are constantly changing. I know you did an episode on
1: independence, and that was particularly interesting for us. I don't want it to sound also
0: Pollyanna-ish, but the greatest joy I have personally had working on this show is having my mind changed. And it does all the time, to having things that I believed were true fall like sand beneath my feet.
3: And I think, too, what perhaps the independent mindset can allow for is... Possibly a greater openness to conversation with people of different perspectives because it's certainly in both my life and on this show been through that that my mind has been changed or that things have been revealed to be untrue.
1: That was Hannah McCarthy and Nick Capodice of the popular Civics 101 radio show and podcast also used as an educational resource throughout the country.
2: It's like Schoolhouse Rock and the Simpsons Civics episode rolled into one. In 1776, there were fireworks too.
3: The city of Washington was built on a stagnant swamp some 200 years ago,
0: and very little has changed
2: with quite a bit more of that NPR research and credibility.
1: There's over 250 Civics 101 episodes and counting. My personal favorites are not surprisingly on independence and third parties. But in light of recent history, the episode on peaceful transition of power also resonates quite a bit.
2: And I'm going to be that high school overachiever who raises her hand and says, I love them all. But you've got to check out their starter kit. How a bill really becomes a law, even before the other 200.
1: Thanks also to Dr. Laura Hammack and Colonel Michael Moffat for speaking with us for this episode. In today's polarized climate, we're not going to get a lot of agreement on many issues, but that's all the more reason to fund and implement civics education as widely as possible, just to make sure there's common ground beneath the hyperpartisan battles.
2: At that day job of mine, Civic Genius, we're all about less division, more action, and strengthening our civic culture. Check us out at ourcivicgenius.org.
1: There's a number of other committed nonprofits doing great work in the civic space, such as iCivics and the Center for Civic Education, which administers the We the People contest. A more complete list is included in our show notes.
2: Next time on The Purple Principle, we're going to look at two of America's most difficult civic undertakings, the abolition of slavery in the 1800s and the civil rights struggle from Reconstruction to the current era.
1: We'll be speaking with Dr. Omar Ali, professor of history at UNC Greensboro and the author of In the Balance of Power, Independent Black Politics and Third Party Movements in the United States. And what the book basically does is It tells a story of the ways in which African Americans have had to effectively insert themselves into the dominant structures, political structures of the society by creating independent political organizations, associations, networks, and uh, parties in some instances to advance civil, political, and economic rights of African Americans. And joined at times, poor and working white people and other groups of people to advance democracy in America. We really hope you'll join us then. And meantime, consider sharing a little civics education in the form of this episode with a friend or colleague. There are links to that and social media in our show notes. And coming soon, we'll be launching bonus material in Patreon, including full-length guest interviews and episode previews. This has been Robert Pease and Jillian Youngblood for the Purple Principle team, Allison Byrne, producer, Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer, Emily Holloway, digital strategy and outreach, Dom Scarlett and Grant Sharrett, research associates, and Emma Trujillo, audio associate. Our original music is composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.